The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. Today is day four of our summer seven-day session. It's the 9th of January, 2024. We're going to continue um, reading verses from Affirming Faith and Mind. Uh, we're using our chanting version that we, we did this morning. And um, also commentaries by the late Chan Master Sheng Yin um, from a little book called Faith and Mind, which is a, a different translation, but we've been using our one for familiarity purposes. The verse we were up to is this one. And when no thing can give offence, then all obstructions cease to be. Uh, with this, we're, we're sort of coming back to the, this main theme of the affirming faith and mind of of um, letting go of picking and choosing. It's pointing out to us, this verse, that we um, create obstructions out of our desires and aversions. But there are actually many instances in our lives when we can choose not to take offence. I think it's especially helpful strategy in marriage. It can save a lot of suffering. One could paraphrase this, this verse in another way by saying, ugliness is in the eye of the beholder. A painting came to mind in this regard. Uh, it's by um, an Italian Renaissance painter, Ghirlandaio, and it's of this. It's quite well known. People may be familiar with it. It's of a, this little boy gazing up at an old man, perhaps his grandfather, and this little boy's eyes are full of love and devotion. The grandfather is looking down on the little boy and also with, with much love. Um, but sort of central in the painting and in this old man's face is his nose, which is um, incredibly bulbous, you could say deformed even. Um, but the little boy doesn't see that this ugly, misshapen nose. The whole, the whole scene is in, in, in a kind of enveloping love. It's one of the most beautiful paintings of, of the gaze of love that I've encountered. Ugliness was not ugliness for that little boy. 
it was it was completely seen seen in in the sense of um, just ordinary, just as it was, no aversion there. If all thought objects disappear, the thinking subject drops away. If all thought objects disappear, the thinking subject drops away. And these next verses are um, about this, this sort of symbiotic relationship between our mind and our thoughts. This, uh, the chapter in the Faith and Mind that deals with this verse is, is headed up, Illusions. And Master Shing Yen says, The mind dharma cannot arise by itself or function alone. It always coexists with the form dharma. The Zen expression one hand clapping illustrates the impossibility of such a thing. The mind can only be found in the realm of mental objects. Or another one is way of saying this is, is that um, that that consciousness always has to be has to be aware of something. Um, as Shingen tells a story that sort of illust- illustrates the 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 nature of the mind and its and its its mental formations. It's a legend. It has to do with Master Nan Chuan, who Pu Yuan, who is a great, a great Tang Dynasty master. Around um, the dates are, I think, seven forty-eight to eight thirty-five. And it tells of Nan Chuan meditating in a hut next to a river. And one night. During his meditation, he heard two ghosts conversing. One of them was rejoicing that his term was coming to an end because the next day someone would be replacing him. And this is apparently a a Chinese idea that um, a ghost drowned in 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 a body of water had to be a ghost there until the next person drowned. The second ghost asked, who will be replacing you? He replied, a man wearing an iron hat. The master wondered to himself who this person could be. The next day there was heavy rain and the river rose to a higher level. The master looked out of his hut and saw a man about to cross the river. He had covered his head with a wok for protection against the rain. Immediately, the master knew that this was the man of the iron hat, so he cautioned him, saying, Don't cross the river today. It's too dangerous. The man asked why, and the master said, Because the water is very deep and running rapidly. The, master listened, the, the man listened to the old monk's advice and returned home. 
That night, as he was meditating, the master heard the two ghosts again. This time, the first ghost was complaining. I have been stuck here for so many years, and I thought my chance for freedom had finally come. But now the old monk interfered and messed everything up. I'll show him what I can do. With that, the ghost broke a hole in the bank of the river so that the water would run down and cover the hut. The master realized that the ghost was trying to drown him. Suddenly, he disappeared from sight. The ghost looked around, but the hut was empty. Actually, the master was still there and heard the ghost very clearly. He was invisible for the simple reason that his mind was not moving. It was not influenced by the environment, no longer tied to mental objects, which are shadows in the mind. He goes on, All our thoughts are illusory. They depend on certain objects or symbols. If there are no objects, forms or symbols in your mind, there would be no illusory thoughts. You can think about this for a minute, that, that everything we think is dependent on images and, and language. So they, these, these shape our, what, we, what we can think even. This is intimate relationship between language and thought. Shingen goes on to talk about how it is possible to have a, an illusory thought that is considered right thought. He says, if you maintain one thought continually without interference, um, for instance, counting the breath, then this is an illusory thought. But if you maintain it without a break, then it would become right thought, the method of your practice. This is a way we can understand Mu also. A thought to take us beyond thought, a word that transcends itself. On the other hand, if your thoughts are constantly changing, they would be considered wandering thoughts rather than right thought. But both of these situations are not the pure mind because your mind is still attached to mental realms. It is not the state of no mind. It is not even the state of one mind. With these mental objects in your mind, it would be difficult to control your next birth at the time of death. Indeed, were you to go to... Were, were you, uh, where you go will be directed by the thrust of your karma. Karma leads you in the direction of your strongest desire or attachment. Thus your mind follows the mental realm that you are most attracted to. The, the teaching of Buddhism is that two things govern our rebirth. One is this sort of um, collective momentum of our um, habit forces, our karma, and our thought, our last thought, thought on dying. That these two are um, condition our rebirth, and it's why uh, in Buddhism we're instructed to create a 
a, cell, a peaceful environment for a person who's dying so they are able to keep practicing right up till the end. And this is no easy thing. This is what Master Shingen is pointing to um, because the dying process is often stressful. It can be, uh, a person can be in pain, they going through enormous changes physically if they have a uh, debilitating disease. There can be all kinds of unfamiliar interventions and treatments. Family gathering who have all their uh, emotions over the, the, the upcoming loss of their loved one. Um, so, so many things which we, we don't necessarily think will happen to us. They are things that happen to other people. But the best way to, to um, die is um, absorbed as we can be in, in our practice. And then uh, that will, will uh, shape where we're headed afterwards. I think it's, I think it's Master Dogen, he says, as long as we're practicing sincerely, moment by moment, then uh, we don't have to worry about coming to awakening this lifetime where we can keep practicing in the next life. And that one way of understanding all that we do in, a, in Sishin, in training our mind, is, is to create an uh, imperturbable mind that, that um, stays centered and focused throughout the, the dying process. It's I think, worth um, examining oneself and, and seeing, well, how, how, what state might my practice be in if, if I were dying right now? And it points up the importance of training now In, and especially in Sishin, when we have such ideal conditions. As Milarepa said, the, the affairs of the world go on endlessly. Practice now the Dharma. If we have a, an ordinary, unruly mind, then as uh, Master Ying Yin points out, uh, we'll be, um, our next birth will be um, dict dictated by karma. If we have a, if we have a trained mind, then um, we'd be free to um, go wherever we wish. So that could, that could be our aspiration, to train our minds so well that at death we keep the practice alive. As long as your mind is filled with greed, hatred or ignorance, you will be immersed in vexation and suffering. You will not even be reborn in the heavens, not to mention be liberated from birth and death. Heavenly states can only be attained by performing meritorious deeds, with a minimum of desire, and you sh could not reach one mind or samadhi because of your strong attachment to certain objects. 
Thus, when you are practicing, all thoughts other than the method should be considered as demons, and even if it feels like you have entered a heavenly state. Some people, as they are sitting, may suddenly enter a completely new world which is very beautiful and comfortable. Afterwards, they want to return to it in each meditation. They may be able to get into that state again, but nonetheless, it is an attachment. There are also other states that are terrifying. Such visions, good and bad, are generally manifestations of your own mental realms. And this is how we can understand them when they occur. Manifestations of our own mental realms. So not having any uh, objective reality to them. Now we can understand why the methods of Gungan and Huado are different than counting the breath, reciting the Buddha's name, or repeating a mantra. Though the latter are necessary in the beginning, they include relative objects, i.e. the breath, the Buddha's name, or the mantra. In these cases, the objects make up your mental realm, and where there is an object, there is, must be a subject, namely the self. But Gungan and Wado are objectless methods of practice, ultimately. Other than the method, there is nothing in front of you. For example, the question, what is Mu, does not have an answer you can grasp. There is nothing behind the question. You are just using it as a method to practice. If there is no object, then what about a subject? When you enter deeply into this method, even though you may not be enlightened, you will not have any sense of self. Your entire self will be enclosed in the great mass of doubt. No ghosts will be able to find you. Next um, few verses uh, can be taken together. For things are things because of mind, as mind is mind because of things. These two are merely relative, and both at source are emptiness. In emptiness these are not two, yet in each are contained all forms. Once coarse and fine are seen no more, then how can there be taking sides? These verses address this um, dependent co-arising of, of mind and, and things. This is a big, a big topic. Um, but one, one example that, that occurred to me of, of this working was something I heard on a radio program a while ago. It was a biologist, a um, paleontologist, um, talking about having pinpointed um, the, the, the time when uh, animals developed the ability to see colors. And at the same time, trees started producing fruits that were, were colored when they got ripe. 
mind. Conditions, phenomena, phenomena, condition, mind. The works of um, Oliver Sacks are often about this this um, great neurologist writer. Um, so these two, these two mind and things are relative. As the next verse says, these two are merely relative and both at source are emptiness. When I first heard this, this verse, it found it oddly comforting that somehow, somehow mind and things arise together and are um, at the same time completely insubstantial. The next verse is, in emptiness these are not two, yet in each are contained all forms. So um, this one suggests um, the holographic universe. People may be aware of the lines in the Avatamska Sutra um, about the great net of Indra made up of jewels and each jewel reflects every other jewel in the, in the great net. In each are contained all forms. So somehow the, the, the whole is present in all the parts. There's a little um, quote from somebody called um, William Keepin from a book called Belonging to God, and this is by a physicist, William Keepin is a physicist. He says, the classic scientific worldview conditioned Western civilization to believe that the world and the cosmos are composed of two, let me start that again. There's a classical scientific worldview conditioned Western civilization is to believe that the world and the cosmos are composed to distinct isolated material objects, each separate from the others and set into a dynamic motion according to rational mechanistic laws. This view began to crumble over 100 years ago with the advent of quantum theory and relativity theory in physics and continued through the 20th century with major breakthroughs in biology, complexity theory, transpersonal psychology, and many other disciplines. Atoms, once believed to be solid nuggets of matter, are revealed to be patterns of vibrating energy. Matter as composed, matter is composed almost entirely of empty space. These discoveries have rapidly shifted our understanding of reality. Science is discovering new levels of interconnection between matter and consciousness, which began with Heisenberg's discovery that nothing exists in objective isolation from the rest of existence. Experiments in quantum physics show that every particle in the universe 
is to varying degrees aware of every other particle, and aware is in quotes, new principles of interconnection known as non-locality and quantum entanglement have been confirmed in repeated experiments. So we are, of course, also composed of patterns of vibrating energy. We are also composed almost entirely of empty space. Or as it's said in the Platform Sutra, from the very beginning there has never been a single thing. Master Xing Yen, when he looks at these, this grouping of um, verses, he um, brings it down to earth in, in a very practical way. He says, these lines describe a non-discriminating mind in which, nevertheless, there is perfectly clear discrimination. In the course of practice, the more negative things you discover about yourself, the clearer you will be as to the road you should walk. So how do we, how do we um, make discriminate discriminations without making discriminations. And he goes on to give a very um, vivid story to illustrate this. He says, after leaving mainland China, I was conscripted into the national, um, nationalist army in Taiwan. At that time, everything was in a state of confusion and the troops were crowded together in a warehouse in this warehouse, there were no windows or lights, and at night, people couldn't see their way to the toilet, so many just relieved themselves where they were. Others who decided to feel their way outside ended up stepping in the, on the mess in the dark. However, at daybreak, one could see the shit very clearly and avoid it. It was a mistake to imagine that just because you couldn't see it, there was no shit on the floor. Those who have never taken up the practice are like people in that dark room. No matter where they walk, they step into shit here and there. Coming to retreat is like putting a light on into the room. Maybe the light will only stay on for a minute, but at least you can see some of the problem areas. Gradually, you will be able to tell exactly where the shit is and where it isn't. The more you know, the, more, the less likely you will step in it. But to get angry when you discover problems would be just adding trouble to trouble. It would be as if, after realizing you stepped in on some shit, you did it again just to punish yourself. So in a sense, you know, we, can, we don't have to feel bad about recognizing our, our painful habits, but actually can rejoice. But of course the important thing is, is not stepping in them again. Retreats are like road repair. When there is a problem underneath the road, the workers break up the pavement to, in order to fix the cables, pipes, or whatever is faulty. After they finish the work, they pave it over again, and everything is just as it was before. 
Likewise, in order to make our own repairs, we have to break up the road and mess things up temporarily. Thus, discovering one's problems in the course of practice is very useful. But do these problems actually exist? Yes, the, the miseries of the retreat are quite real. You are truly tired and uncomfortable. You are definitely in this place and not in some other. Yet you must look at non-existence from the point of view of existence. Say that again, you must look at non-existence from the point of view of existence. When you can't concentrate on the method, when you haven't gotten enough sleep, and when your legs are painful, it is all really happening. But originally your legs were not painful. It was only after you started sitting that they became painful. If you stretch out your legs, they will no longer be painful. Thus, when you experience pain, you should keep in mind that it doesn't have a true existence. If it did, it would be there even when you were not meditating. In other words, it's not, it's, it's not intrinsic. This pain is not intrinsic. It goes away and comes back. Though some of you have trouble concentrating, it cannot be that during the entire retreat there has not been at least one moment when you could concentrate on to some extent. If you can use your method even for a very short time, that already lets you know that your scattered mind does not have true existence. Do not be fearful when your mind is scattered. Just recognize it as temporary. This goes for many of the phenomena that we encounter. Just recognize that they're temporary. This ch changes the, the equation. But when you succeed in concentrating, is that mind real? Of course not. If the mind were truly concentrated, it could not become scattered again. Now, if both the scattered mind and the concentrated mind are unreal, that means there is originally no mind. If this is so, it should be very easy to progress in the practice. To be aware that mind does not exist will strengthen your faith, even though you have not experienced no mind. So long as you have faith in the non-existence of mind, you can keep on practicing without any anxiety or disappointment. I think this was what I, I vaguely sensed when I felt somehow uh, comforted by those, those lines from, from the, the chant. These two are merely relative, that is things and mind, and both are source, are emptiness. This is what we can be very helpful to put our, our faith in when we're practicing. A small setback does not mean that you have failed. It is just that the time has not yet arrived. If you climb halfway up a mountain, you cannot say that you have failed. You just need to continue climbing until you reach the summit. just have to keep climbing until you reach the summit.
Now let us look at existence from the point of view of emptiness. For example, a monk cannot say that women do not exist just because he does not have relationships with them. There is a story I often tell from the koans. A monk who was practicing chan was being supported by an old woman who provided him with a hut and daily offerings of food. One day she decided to test his practice. She told her beautiful daughter to bring the monk his food and then to embrace him. The next day, the old woman asked the monk, how did you find my daughter? He replied, like dry wood leaning against a cold rock. With that, she grabbed a broom and shooed him away, saying, all this time I thought you were a man of Chan. What, what was it in his response that she uh, took umbrage at? Sheng Yen says, although this monk hadn't reached a deep level of practice, he had not yet realized Chan, which is um, to transcend both form and emptiness. Being attached to emptiness, he denied existence. He, he, in a sense, he, he dehumanized the, the daughter by calling, calling her a um, dry wood. How would you have responded in that situation? What would you have, have said? Being attached to emptiness, he denied existence. During a retreat, you can enter a state where you do not taste your food or know that where you are walking. You do not recognize the person you are looking at. In this condition, your body follows the normal routine, but your mind is totally absorbed in the method. You have entered the great doubt sensation. Prior to this, when your mind is still scattered, I tell you to concentrate carefully on whatever you are doing and to maintain a total awareness of every action. When you are completely focused, you may slip into the next stage where you lose awareness of your body, even as it continues to function smoothly and automatically. The third level is to return to total awareness. However, unlike the first level, there are no scattered thoughts whatsoever. When you are eating, you are just eating. When you are sleeping, you are just sleeping. No more, no less. This is what we, we aspire to. No minded engagement with everything. But at the same time, ordinary. Originally, you had to work very hard on your method, but when you get to the second level, everything flows naturally. The practice just keeps, keeps moving like a ball rolling down a hill. At that time, even though you are practicing very well, you would not think of yourself as practicing. This is called the true existence of emptiness. That is to say, you feel that nothing exists, but your mind is really there, working on the method. The experience of one's method and body disappearing are due to two factors. On the one hand, one can slip into a kind of nebulous state out of pure laziness. On the other hand, a person using the method very well is just like someone so accustomed to riding a horse that they forget the horse beneath them. This is a good phenomenon.
the horse and the person become one. A person who has arrived at enlightened mind is looking at existence from the standpoint of emptiness. Once a Chan master was asked by a disciple, if many calamities were to appear before you at once, what would you do? The master said, red is not white and green is not yellow. Whatever it is, that's what it is. But isn't seeing whatever a thing is how everybody sees things all the time? It goes on to tell another story which illustrates um, this, this state of, of imperturbability in a graphic way. And again, again, this is another story from the Song Dynasty. And it's about when China was at a certain point invaded by the Mongols. And um, a band of, of these warriors who were extremely fierce descended on a small town. And everybody fled, including the soldiers and most of the inhabitants. But when the Mongols entered the um, gates of the little temple there, they found a Chan master sitting doing zazen. He had not fled. And thinking that he'd, he'd stay there because of part of a plot, they grabbed him and dragged him in front of them, their general. And the general asked him, why he didn't fee with everybody else. And he said, everybody has to die sometime. I could die here, I could die there. Why should I flee? The general asked, are you not afraid of death? The monk replied, I would not say that I am hoping to die, but if my time has come, then that's that. The general said, I'm going to kill you. The monk replied, all right, but I want to tell you something first. Don't think that you are killing me. Is your sword capable of killing wind or water? If you slice into water, you just separate it for an instant and then it, become, it comes together again. If you cut off my head, you just separate it from my body, but you're killing me is your own business. It has nothing to do with me, because I neither desire nor fear death. That is to say, and this is, this is Xing Yen commenting, that is to say, after every enlightenment, everything exists, but not the self. It's a really, I think, a very helpful formulation. After enlightenment, everything exists, just not the self. He finishes, we have talked about emptiness from the point of view of existence and existence from the point of view of emptiness. Both existence and emptiness are existing and non-existing. Do you understand? Don't worry if you don't. If you truly grasp the meaning, you are already enlightened. Don't worry. Don't worry if you don't. Just practice.
a little more commentary on the, this last verse that I mentioned. Um, Once coarse and, fina, coarse and fine are seen no more, then how can they be taking sides? Back to our not picking and choosing um, theme from this chant. You can relate this specifically to practice, this fine or coarse. This refers, Master Shigian says, to the deepness or shallowness of practice. I have often cautioned you against comparing your practice with that of others or your own itself at different times. Such comparisons are only subjective. Today, somebody burst out crying in the meditation hall. One person may have thought, oh, she's not doing well. Another, I think she's becoming enlightened. Or else, maybe she's going crazy. None of these thoughts may represent the true situation. Whether she felt pain or sorrow, became enlightened or went crazy, that's her business. It has nothing to do with anyone else. Making comparisons inevitably means judging others. And so often we, we project onto others our own attachments and aversions. One of the, the reasons why we um, keep our eyes down in Sishin is to dampen down our habit of checking other people out and comparing ourselves to them. It's very easy to um, assume that everyone else is, is doing great even though we're com completely struggling. He says, when you are sitting, refrain from looking around and sizing people up. A common type of comparison people make on retreat is to see someone sitting through three, three periods and think, how can he do that? Don't his legs hurt? Boy, my legs hurt all the time. I can't barely get through one round. Sometime later, the person may get up and then we say to ourselves, ha, probably his legs are hurting now, so he's not so special after all. These are examples of comparing yourself to others, but you can also compare yourself to yourself. Perhaps you are having a miserable time from day one. Your legs hurt, you are generally uncomfortable and cannot get into the spirit of practice. You feel plagued with problems. But there comes a day when suddenly you feel great. Your body is comfortable and your mind is calm. You are pleased by these ch this change of affairs and say to yourself, I finally got it. You become so excited that you can no longer meditate. Later, when your meditation is not pleasurable, you may try to analyze how you sat so well that one time and why you're so uncomfortable now. We probably all do this to some extent, especially the first time we experience some degree of absor absorption. We turn that absorption into an object of our desire. We fix it. 
and try and grasp hold of it and hold on to it. Comparing good and bad is just deluded thinking. As long as you are immersed in these wandering thoughts, you will not enter the proper conditions for practice. Do not concern yourself with anything going on around you, nor should you be concerned with anything going on inside yourself. Focus fully on the method and do not make external or internal comparisons. If you can do that, your practice will be effective. It's easier said than done. I think many of us find that this, this is pretty compulsive, the, our judging and comparing. Actually, he introduces um, four practices that we can do when we come on, on retreat, come to Sishin. He says we have to isolate ourselves. Um, Sashin is, is, is both um, doing something alone and doing it together with others. But he suggests sort of four stages of progressive isolation when we, we enter Sashin. First, isolate yourself from your affairs outside the retreat. Next, ignore the environment within the retreat itself. So don't get caught up in, in thinking about what's going on around you. As far as you are concerned, you're the only person here. Take another step further and put aside all thoughts of the past and the future. Finally, forget the thought that has just passed or the thought to come. Narrow yourself down to the thought of the present moment. You are reduced to a tiny, tiny point which is concentrated on the method. Even so, a demon can come and grab you because you still have that minuscule point left. But if you can continue to focus on the method single-mindedly, it will become easy for you to depart from even that one thought. This is very, very helpful advice, and we could do well to apply it every time we come together in Sushin. This could be summed up in saying, mind your own business, and even don't mind that. No matter how disturbing your surroundings or your inner mind, you should take clear note of it and avoid any feeling of aversion. Any feelings of good or bad regarding the environment or ourselves are actually projections of our own deep-seated emotional attachments. Events and things have no intrinsic good or evil qualities. And perhaps that's a good place to stop. Our time is up. But if we can remember this when our, when judgments of good and bad and right and wrong arise, Remember that they are being generated by our, our, our mind. They have contained information for us in that regard. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.